Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 91. It's the steamy coast of Southeast Africa, 1824. Port Natal, to be exact. It's now called Itegweni, from the Zulu word for port, Iteku. Although some say it's actually from the word Emateku, meaning the one testicle thing. It was not a port during pre-settler times, and the original and ancient local name for this bay was Isibubulungu. That was what the locals called it in 1824. Isibubulungu means membership. So I suppose we could call it Itikweni in Natali, just for a bit of fun. To further complicate the nomenclature, Port Natal was not a port back in 1824. It was a bay with a sweeping sandy beach and a dangerous sandbar across its entrance that produced huge standing waves. People have lived near this bay for more than 100,000 years, and the last people before the settlers arrived were pre-Zulu. Then in 1497, Vasco da Gama sailed up the coast from the south and called the whole coastline Natal, which means Christmas in Portuguese. That's because it was the Christmas period as Vasco da Gama sailed up the coast, trying to find the most direct route to the Spice Islands and India. The 1656 wrecking of the Stevenissa at the entrance to the Bay of Natal led to a comprehensive description of what awaited these 1824 traders later. The sailors built a smaller vessel from the wreck and then sailed this craft to Cape Town, leaving four Englishmen and a Frenchman behind. This little boat somehow made it to Table Bay and the Dutch VOC company was alerted. When rescuers eventually arrived back at Port Natal in 1660, they found only two of the seamen who remained. The others that either joined the local African clans were had died. The two survivors had many stories to tell, including one about a man, an old Portuguese man, who no longer spoke Portuguese and who had lived amongst the local people for 50 years. He'd been circumcised, had taken a wife, had cattle, he had children and land. Port Natal was described as being naturally fertile, with the rivers around it abundantly stored with good fish and waterfowl, hippos, elephants, rhinoceroses, lions, hyenas, jackals, ostriches and other birds and buck. Sailing back and forth along this part of the coast were traders. One of the most famous who sailed ashore was Captain W.F.W. Owen, who by 1824 had taken ships such as the Eleven, the Barracuta and the Coburn up to Delegoa Bay. Others were Commodore Norse, who was commander at Simonstown, and who'd headed off in 1822 in the Andromache to meet Owen at Delagoa Bay. These were adventurers who wanted to make their names and fortunes from this unique part of the world. Norse's brother Henry Norse heard of their tales and, being well off, decided to sponsor an upcoming business venture to Port Natal. By March 1823, Captain Owen was back in Delagoa Bay and bumped into a ship called the Singapore from Calcutta and the Orange Grove owned by Henry Norse. Owen's crew began to die from malaria at Delagoa Bay and he left after press-ganging 12 blacks from the nearby villages. It was a thousand-kilometre trip to Port Elizabeth when Owen met up with two more ships that will feature in the story of Port Natal. One was called the Jane and the other the Salisbury. There's an island in Durban Harbour, Itikweni Harbour, which is called Salisbury Island and named after this ship. The Salisbury's captain was James Saunders King, a crucial character in our tale. A former Royal Navy midshipman, King had turned himself into a small-time merchant 
who had a new job ferrying troops between Cape Town and Port Elizabeth by the early 1820s. He tried to negotiate a deal to slaughter seals and fish on what were known as the Chaos Islands off Algoa Bay, but the government denied his request. Joining King in the early ventures was a fellow ex-Royal Navy man by the name of Francis Farewell, who was known for his courage during the Napoleonic Wars. These two, Farewell and King, formed a tight pair speculating on possible maritime businesses. They'd bought a 400-ton ship called the Princess Charlotte, then sold it and earned a profit. A third character in this part of our story, a man who was to marry into the Zulu clans and whose family now dominate parts of South Africa, Henry Francis Finn, now pops up. Finn and Farewell chartered the Salisbury from King and began to sail between Rio de Janeiro, the West Indies, Mauritius, and South Africa. So by the mid-1823 era, Farewell was on board the Julia, a ship he had hired from another Cape Town businessman called James Gosling. There's a great deal of suspicion about what these men were up to. Even then, ships were insured and Farewell had described his voyage as To Port Natal, the River St. Lucia, on the side of Delagoa Bay, to Delagoa Bay and possibly to Inhambane and back to Table Bay, with the liberty to touch, trade, stay and barter at all intermediate ports and places on the coast of Africa. He also said, The value of the return cargo is quite uncertain. There's no proof of what Farewell, King and Finn were up to. They were adventurers who were probably going after ivory, hides, gum, animal products. This was a virgin coastline. Treasures awaited the bold. James Saunders King followed Farewell up the coast a few weeks later in the Salisbury and was hired at the princely sum of £160 a month. But Farewell had stipulated that King should not go anywhere past Delago Bay. So who was in charge of whom? This somewhat ragtag outfit was going to be buffeted by many ifs and buts later. The Salisbury set sail from Cape Town, carrying supplies for Captain Owen, who was still hanging out in Port Elizabeth, mid-1823. Standing alongside Owen on the beach at Port Elizabeth were two black interpreters. Both were ex-convicts from Robben Island and had spent some time at sea already. One we know only as Jacot and the other was called Fire. Jacot was a Corsa man who'd been arrested on the frontier for stealing sheep. King struck a deal with Owen, who had drawn a very basic chart of Port Natal's treacherous sandbars. King would sail to this bay, run the soundings, and draw a more detailed chart, which he'd bring back to Owen. But King was so enamoured by Port Natal that when he returned... He ignored the promise to Owen and headed off straight to the Admiralty in London, claiming he had discovered the port himself. King said he'd give this chart to the Admiralty if they made him an officer, preferably a lieutenant in the Royal Navy. He was duly kicked out of the building in no uncertain terms. Later, Owen would gloat when King was shipwrecked on the very same sandbar across the Bay of Port Natal that he had mapped. Owen wrote in his biography later that it was a case of Perfidy meeting its reward. But we digress. The public library in Cape Town in 1824 featured a map that noted, The river of Natal falls into the Indian Ocean in 80 degrees latitude. Its mouth is wide and deep enough for small craft, but there is a sandbank, which, at the highest flood, is not more than 10 or 12 feet water. 
Within this bank, the water is deep. There aren't many good harbours along this coastline. In fact, the only other really ideal one was at Richards Bay, and when I was a child it was pre-cold terminal with crocodiles and a dangerous little inlet. It would take another 150 years before it would be developed. So, back to Port Natal. The Ambula River flows into the bay, but the much larger river to the north is the Imgeni. The Ambula was dominated by mangrove swamps which surrounded this perfect little bay. It's large, a semicircle, and many smaller streams flowed into the bay area. On each side there stretched a row of sandstone hills, and in the north there were hillocks of loose sand. That's where Mflanga Rocks is today. Back on board the Salisbury, Jackot, the translator, was described as tall, powerful, and self-assured, and he joined Owen's ship from Port Elizabeth in July 1823. They headed up the coast to Delagoa Bay first. This is where our story intersects with Henry Francis Finn. The latter had arrived in Cape Town in 1818, then spent some time wandering about the eastern Cape frontier. He had heard about Henry Norse's ships and wanted to join in these ventures. There is another reason why Finn joined. According to Eastern Cape official C.L. Stretch, Finn was on the run from the law after robbing a store in the little town of Bathurst. Finn sailed north on board a brigantine called the Mary and 12 days later arrived in Delago Bay. There are all sorts of stories about what Finn and Owen were doing at the bay, with a few historians suggesting they were slave trading. Whatever they were doing, Finn left in late 1823. Meanwhile, to the south at St. Lucia Estuary, King and Farewell were having a tough time. Farewell had been hanging around off the coast here for more than a week. Bad weather meant he could not approach the beach. By mid-September 1823, King had arrived off that beach in the Salisbury. Both King and Farewell were in a rush to sell their beads and iron to the locals, so they began to make mistakes. As anyone who has seen this type of wave that is generated along this part of the Indian Ocean, it's no place for bad planning. King sailed up in the Salisbury, then tried to land a small boat full of beads, bangles and cloth, but it overturned in the St. Lucia heavy sea and he lost everything inside, the sailors just managing to swim to safety. Then King tried again, and this time it was worse. Not only did the small boat overturn, but three men drowned more than a mile from the shore. The rest, believed to be about four, managed to swim to the beach. The four included Jacket, the causa survivor of Robin Island. Farewell and King then committed what is regarded as one of the worst sins by seafarers, and left Jacket behind. They later lied, saying he drowned. What had also transpired along the way is that a sailor by the name of Thompson and Jackot had had a punch-up in the surf. Jackot had run into the bush while Thompson had managed to return to the Salisbury. The plot thickened. If Farewell and King thought that was the end of the Causa Man, they were to be mistaken. We'll bump into him during future podcasts. So after these mishaps, the adventurers sailed south to Port Natal. In Isizulu's storytelling, the bay and the treacherous sandbar feature as part of oral tradition. One of the stories includes an explanation of what happened in 1824, possibly just before Farewell, Owen and King arrived. Shaka sent an impi to cross the bay at a low tide. They waded to the bluff. Then the impi made their way down the bluff and along the ridges of the Impunyungwana Hill, which is just below Sapingo. 
Then they marched between the Umlazi and the Zimbudoka streams heading to Mpondo country further south. This was a raiding party, we told. On the way back, they were surprised to find a white man just off the beach close to Mgeni River, north of the bay. That man was Henry Francis Finn. It was only a few days before this meeting that Finn had managed somehow to row his small boat from the sloop Julia across the feared sandbar and set up his camp alongside the mangroves. The date, mid-May 1824. What was he doing here? We know he was there with food stores and a couple of mechanics, as they were known, men who could build wagons and machines. There was someone called Ogle, who was English, along with a Prussian, a Frenchman, a hot and tot servant called Michael, and an interpreter called Frederick, who was from the Eastern Cape. The first night on the beach, Finn and company had fought off hyenas that had slunk into their camp after a big storm. Finn was now trying to make contact with someone he called Shaka. He met a chieftain called Sinkrila Kaampipi of the Tele people who passed on messages to Shaka as an ally. Then a 60-year-old man arrived to speak to these white traders. His name was Mbikwana of the Langeni people, and he has appeared already in our story. Mbikwana had fled with Shaka to join the Mtetwa 20 years earlier, and was one of his most trusted lieutenants. Mbikwana sized up Finn, then took him back to the Tseli homestead a short distance away. Why were these traders seeking Shaka's support? It's now that we need to return to what was going on in Shaka's territory, Zululand, and in particular the area from the Tigela south through Port Natal to the Mpondo land in what is modern-day Transkai. So we know by 1824 that Shaka had penetrated this far south from his centre near the Mplatuzi River. Since Zwede of the Ndwandwe had been sent packing, Shaka had reinforced his growing empire along the Mfolozi and Platuzi and down to the Tugela rivers. He was to focus much attention south. He managed to unify groups of southern people like the Satoli of Jobe, the Mkize, the Kwabe and the Tele. In fact, Shaka was to move his main homestead from Kwa Bulawayo on the Mplatuzi to Kwa Dukuza or Stanga only a couple of years after defeating Zwede. His gaze swept south from the Tugela to the Mpondo, who lived close to the Mzimkulu River, and naturally that sweeping gaze covered a place called Port Natal. By 1824 it began to send impis into Mpondo territory, and it was one of these that had stumbled across these strangers from the sea. The role of this mighty river, the Tugela, is crucial, because later it became the border of many things. Right now, Shaka regarded the people south of the Tugela as more difficult to organize than those to the north. They were further away from his lower Mplatuzi, and the number of different chieftains southwards took longer to subjugate. He knew that Zwide was in control of the territory north and felt that his expansion was best practiced towards the Mpondo. The first people he needed to convince to join his growing empire were the Tembu on the middle Tugela, close to his Isuzulu center, and the Tunu who lived on the Mvoti River. The Mkize were based just south of the Tugela at this stage, dominated by the slightly loopy Sambela, who seemed to enjoy killing people, as you've heard. Zitlando of the Mkize, however, tempered his brother's off-the-charts ADHD. Ngoza of the Tembu and Matlingwani of the Tunu were not to be easily overcome, however. Remember I explained how the Mkize had basically and merrily been attacking local chieftains, sometimes claiming Shaka made them do it. Sambela, in particular, was a bloodthirsty killer of many. 
he knocked off Zitlando's brother, Machu Kumbele, and his son, Sibabili, for example. There is a central story about what was going on just before Farewell Finn, Isaacs, Owen, and King landed on the shores of Port Natal. This Matla regiment was gathered together by Zitlando on Shaka's orders and crossed it together with the aim of attacking Umcholoza and Gayeni, who were the Mkise, ignoring his power. By targeting the regimental leaders in the attacks, they overcame Cholosa and Gaeni and chased the people for around 20 kilometers into the hilly country south of the Chikela. Afterwards, Zitlando's Mkise were recognized as part of the enlarged nexus of kingdoms like the Kwabe, the Tuli, Tvele, all part of the Zulu Empire. The Tvele lived around Port Natal, and it was they who would feel the effect of the first settlers. By now, Shaka's Iziyandani Ibuto from the north, mainly comprised of Hlubi clans, were beginning to make a name for themselves. They carried all red shields, distinctive against the green felt and bush of Zululand. Their name comes from the swaying motion of the men's shoulder-length plats, the Ukayenda. As the Iziyandani marched about the region, they began to crush the smaller clans south of the Tugela, and they morphed from using threats of violence into committing acts of violence. Shaka's pseudo-colonial expansion around southern Tugela was going to turn from incorporation into straightforward raiding, as historian Dan Wiley calls it. There was growing chaos here, with groups like Kabela, the Bomvu, who lived south of the Tugela, finding themselves ensnared in Shaka's expansion. What is clear is that there was not a constant tribute being paid by these chiefdoms, they only paid tribute when an impi was sent south. There was no single campaign where the land was laid to waste, where whole tribes were slaughtered, but there was now an inexorable escalation. The main theme Shaka used to describe the sort of raid was to say he was going for snuff, but he was really raiding cattle. He would say to his counsellors, Tomorrow I shall not come, I am going to ask for snuff from the Nganga. Don't expect to see me assemble in my kraal, Tokusa. Don't you see that it's painful to be like an ant bear which digs a hole and then doesn't live in it, being driven out by a porcupine, he said of these southerners. Shaka had to reinforce his power and authority in his mind because he was always being challenged by some little porcupine somewhere. It was in the three years leading up to 1824 that the Iziyendani and their red shields became truly feared, and in some cases they got out of hand, leading to stories of people diving into the swamps when they were seen approaching. Groups of Mkize and the Tele, the clans of Tresibe, Ndelu, Dungu, Mapumulo, the Batra, a smattering of them, Tetwara, the Nyuswa, the Nkolosi men from the north, ended up in the south and feeling the brunt of the Iziyendani. What made this violence more difficult to manage for local groups was that the Iziyendani took orders from both Shaka and his mother Nandi, who was also living at Kwabuluwayo with her regent's son. By the time the first white traders arrived, they observed the effect of the Iziyendani on the people around Port Natal. So next episode, we'll hear how the locals referred to the first traders as beasts from the sea, and how the European traders set up their camp at Port Natal and then began to parley with Shaka. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter 
You can direct message me there at Des Latham. Until next, Salagatli. Thank you.